my name's Greg Knapp. This is the Greg Knapp Experience, your 20-minute thrill ride for your commute or your workout. Well, Biden is defiantly ignoring the courts and telling businesses to proceed with his vaccine mandate anyway, even though the courts issued a stay. I would call that tyranny. California COVID rate is now twice the Florida rate. Adam Schiff is still lying about the Russian hoax. And some schools say giving D's and F's, racist and classist. All that, and inflation continues as Joe has no idea how to bring down the cost of a gallon of gasoline. It's coming up on the Greg Knapp Experience. Let's go. So let's start with Joe Biden. Tyranny? Joe Biden, the dictator? Yeah, everything that the Democrats claimed Trump was going to do, Biden is doing. Case in point, the White House came out Monday, which means Joe Biden came out Monday and said, Businesses should move forward with Joe Biden's vaccine mandate for private businesses, despite the federal appeals court issuing a temporary stay. So the court said, halt, you cannot do this. And in fact, here's what they actually said, that they believe the petitions cause give cause to believe there are grave statutory and constitutional issues with the mandate. And yet, we don't care. White House Deputy Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre, people should not wait. They should continue to move forward and make sure they're getting their workplace vaccinated. Well, Greg, they're just trying to get them vaccinated. They, They didn't say they should defy the court order. They're just saying, go ahead and keep vaccinating your people. No, they're telling you, keep going with the Biden vaccine mandate. This was the whole play, all right? Biden and his people know that it's not constitutional. Now, they're hoping they will get a ruling from some liberal judges that allows them to do it anyway, but they know deep in their hearts it's unconstitutional. Biden said it was months before he decided that it wasn't. But they don't care because they figure, you know what, it takes a long time for things to go through the courts. If we just tell all these companies that they have to do it, they'll start doing it. And guess what? They are. Most of them already are doing this. They're really pushing their employees and they're telling them that they will be fired if they don't get this thing done. So they knew that that would happen. Then they knew it would take a long time to go through the courts. And by the time it goes through the courts, if they've been acting like it's enforceable, then most of these companies will do it. That's what they're hoping will happen. It's tyranny. What, where, I mean, where are the people and where is Congress saying the president of the United States of America does not have the right to defy the courts when they say an order from him is unconstitutional or very well may be unconstitutional? Nowhere. Nowhere. The Republican attorneys general in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Utah have been suing. Thankfully, 27 states now have been suing. Uh, several companies have requested the pause, arguing the requirements exceed the authority of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, which will enforce the mandates and amount to an unconstitutional delegation of power to the executive branch of Congress. Yes, that's absolutely true. You know what else is true? There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the President of the United States or OSHA or even Congress the power to force you to take this vaccine in order to go to work. No, no, it's not in the Constitution. Greg, the Constitution, come on, man, that's an old document. Yeah, thank God we have it, because what it does is it limits the power for government to do stuff like this. But in its response Monday evening, the Biden administration asked the court to lift the pause, dismissing the states and companies' claims of harm as, get this, premature. I mean, the deadlines for the vaccination and testing aren't until January. But they start in December. And 
the companies are already getting this in line because they have to. There already is damage being done. The administration claimed that pausing the requirements would likely cost dozens or even hundreds of lives every day. They have no proof of that. The Labor and Justice Departments also argued that OSHA acted within its authority as established by Congress. Congress has no authority to give OSHA that authority. Waited so long, telling companies to do it anyway. Hope is the courts won't be able to stop it. Absolutely. And there's no part of, of this that's been proven, by the way, that, that it's going to save all these lives. Well, yeah, because we, we can extrapolate that from this. Don't you believe in science? There's a lot of interesting science that's been coming out on vaccines and their efficacy over a six-month period of time and things like what uh, monoclonal therapies can do and things like what better ventilation can do and all kinds of things that are out there, but you're not allowed to talk about it or it'd be the platform. But this idea that somehow there's only one absolutely right way that Biden's figured out is simply ridiculous. Look, nothing about people who have natural immunity because they've had COVID to get them out of this vaccine mandate. They have to fight tooth and nail to get any kind of a health exception or a religious exception. There's big problems here. It's required for full vaccination by January 4. After that date, unvaccinated workers must submit a negative COVID-19 test weekly that they have to pay for to enter the workplace and must start wearing face masks indoors at their workplaces starting December 5th. The federal government has no right to do any of that to a private business. No. At least 26 states have challenged Biden's vaccine and testing requirements in five different U.S. appeals courts. It's going to be a while to see how all this plays out, and that's what they're hoping so that they have time to push this through. Where are we? Really, when you look at this, Biden is pitting owners against employers. Excuse me, against employees. And he doesn't really seem to care about the impact on how many experienced people we will lose in the workplace and how many of those people are so important to actually keep your life going and sometimes, and sometimes, literally. How about this? Doctors, nurses, police officers, firefighters, pilots, on and on. These people hold your life in their hands while they're doing their jobs. How many are going to take early retirement? How many are going to take a leave? How many are going to absolutely end up getting fired and we're going to lose those people? How dangerous is that? Meanwhile, did you see this? California's COVID rate is now double the rate in Florida, despite the mask mandates that California's been doing. You know, it's a cycle. We've been talking about this. Every year we're going to go through the cycle. You can try and delay COVID for a little bit, but you're not going to stop it. Remember, it was the whole, all about slowing the spread, flattening the curve. It wasn't about stopping this thing, but now we act like we can and we can't. Cases in California are no longer falling. The rate is increasing to the red high level, as the CDC puts it. In Texas and Florida now, we are not in the red level. State leaders did not enforce face mask policies or support other strict mandates. 62% of California's total population is fully vaccinated. Florida has 60%. Texas has 54%. But really what's more important, the death rates and the vaccination rates of those at high risk. That's what's really more important. For two weeks and counting, this is from Press Secretary for Governor DeSantis in Florida. For two weeks and counting, Florida has had the lowest rate of new COVID-19 cases in the entire country. With no, max with no mandates, vaccine passports, or lockdowns. Overall, COVID hospitalizations have been declining for more than 70 days in a row. 
We're at an all-time low in terms of the number of COVID patients hospitalized statewide. And they say it's because of this. Early treatment, getting the monoclonal antibodies as soon as possible after testing positive or experiencing symptoms, cuts the risk of hospitalization by 70% or more, and they are touting how many people in Florida have been vaccinated, and especially how many people over the age of 65 have been vaccinated. Governor DeSantis is not anti-vax. He's simply anti-forcing you to get vaccinated, just like I am. Paul Weissman talks about how they're going to enforce this thing. If Biden really wants this thing enforced, this vaccine mandate nationwide on, on businesses, and now they're looking at even businesses with less than 100 employees, they're saying, yeah, they're going to have to have people tattle. Oh, not tattle, report, whistleblowers. Right. Here's the deal. OSHA can't enforce this thing. They don't have enough people. So what they're relying on is that employees will run to the CDC and say, my employer is not making everybody get vaccinated. There was a guy sitting next to me without a mask on, and they're hoping that that's going to do it. So now we're going to recruit a nation of tattletales to take care of this. Hmm. Okay. That'll, that'll really, you know, lead to some great bonding at the workplace. Just a second, I want to talk to you about what's going on with the Durham investigation over the Russian collusion hoax and how that's now gone to people that were involved in the Clinton administration and the Biden administration. But if you're enjoying the show, I'm really encouraging you. I need your help. If you love the show, please tell others about it. Subscribe, listen to it on wherever podcasts are, like it, review it wherever you can, and tell three friends to tell three friends. This is our way to combat the far left's message that's really destroying our country and rally around what makes America exceptional. So tell three friends to tell three friends and let's really grow this movement. I really appreciate y'all doing that. So National Security Advisor Sullivan for Biden is a former policy advisor in the former Clinton lawyer indictment of, of, uh, of the Durham investigation. You've been following this? I know. It gets a little complicated. I'm going to try and keep it really, really easy. Jake Sullivan, President Biden's White House National Security Advisor, is the, quote, foreign policy advisor who's referred to in the indictment of Michael Sussman, who is the former Hillary Clinton presidential campaign lawyer. Wow. All right. So the Durham investigation into the Russian collusion hoax is showing the people that were lying to keep this thing going and now it's tied into not just the Clinton administration, but the Biden administration. But now remember, Jake Sullivan isn't really accused of being a target in the investigation, only that he received the information from Sussman. Sussman was indicted for allegedly lying to the FBI on September 16. Durham's indictment alleges that Sussman told then-FBI general counsel James Baker he was not doing work for any client. Of course he was. He was working for the Clinton administration. He later billed the Clinton campaign for the work. FBI also looked into the story about an alleged link between the Trump presidential campaign and the Russian bank turned out to be bogus. The Durham indictment also alleges Sussman was working on behalf of a high-tech industry executive, an American internet company, and Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. That goes on top of the other grand jury indictment, that just came out, an Igor Danchenko, Russian analyst who was accused of being the primary subsource in the Steele dossier, charged with five counts of making false statements to the FBI. Now, as you dig deep into that, Igor Danchenko's like, I can't believe that Steele thought that what I was telling him were facts. This was just stuff that I heard, and, you know, I made some of it up. Yeah, like the P-tape. Totally made up. 
Sullivan has already been revealed by Durham's investigation to have promoted the fake story of the Trump-Russia collusion story, the Alpha Bank story we were just talking about. That was the same case Sussman was working on. So he was pushing that. He was pushing that to the media. The guy that works for Biden now and used to work for Hillary Clinton. Nice, huh? Adam Schiff keeps lying. He was on The View, and The View guest host Morgan Ortegas went after him. First time he had some real tough questions about this because he would never go on stations like Fox News that would ask him. So they had this guest host, and she went after him about his lack of credibility over the Steele dossier, and he was the guy that read it into the congressional record. He was the guy that kept telling you that, I've got the smoking gun. I've got, I can't tell you about it right now, but I've got so much evidence to show the Russian collusion. And this Steele dossier, he's got to read it into the congressional record because it's so important. And so she called him on it, and he acted like, well, I mean, I, well, surely I, I didn't know. How could I know that? The, you're the one who promised us that it was everything was right about it. So she confronted Schiff about revelations that the Steele dossier had been a partisan deception meant to undermine the Republican candidate. But he would not take any role of responsibility. This is David Harsani pointing it out. Uh, he said, he said, you know, it's one thing to say allegations should be investigated. It's another to say we should have foreseen in advance that some people were lying to Christopher Steele, which would have been impossible. But let's not use that as a smokescreen to somehow shield Donald Trump's culpability. So instantly he goes away from all the lies he told about the Steele dossier because he went on TV time and time again saying that it was a fact that the Trump campaign had colluded with the Russian government during the campaign. And in fact, none of the reports showed that that was a fact. They all showed it was not a fact. So he, he quickly throws it back on Trump. Uh, this shouldn't shield Donald Trump's culpability for inviting Russia to help him in the election, which they did. He's claiming that it's because they passed on some polling data, but I've got a story on that in a second. Trying to force Ukraine into helping him in the next election, which he did. No, what Trump was doing was asking Ukraine to look into serious problems with Hunter and Joe Biden and corruption in Ukraine and that Biden bragged about getting the Ukraine prosecutor fired. That is a fact. Biden has bragged about that. It's on tape. Well, it's because Obama told him that the guy was corrupt and had to get rid of him. That's absolutely one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, let's protect my son and get this guy out of here. No, 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 that's totally been debunked. No, it really hasn't. It's just one idea against another idea at this point. And that's kind of an important thing. If the sitting vice president forced out a foreign country's prosecutor from doing his job based on money of the American taxpayer, which is what that was all about from what Biden said, if you go back and listen to him. Back to Schiff. And into inciting an insurrection, which he did. Again, that's total opinion, because if you go back and read Trump's speech on January 6th, he actually specifically said to do the protests peacefully. Never once told them to storm the Capitol and go inside and do any kind of illegal activities. So he just continues to lie on TV. And unfortunately, Morgan Ortega, I don't think, knew enough to combat all those lies. She just kept going back to the dossier. Again, to Adam, to uh, David Harsani, Schiff knew the dossier was an oppo research document paid for by the Clinton campaign and the DNC. Schiff tried to suppress information that undercut collusion accusations. He claimed, for instance, that Devin Nunes' memo detailing the dossier's origins and lack of evidence, quote, 
was unsupported by the facts and the investigative record, end quote. And when, after years of delay, Schiff was forced to release transcripts of interviews conducted by House Intelligence Committees into Russia's meddling, we learned the Director of National Intelligence, former Obama Attorney General, former Deputy Attorney General, and the FBI Deputy Director, among others, all told his committee there was no direct evidence of criminal conspiracy. He knew that, and he kept going on TV telling people the Trump campaign had colluded with the Russian government and that it was a fact, but it was a lie. Glenn Greenwald, you know, he's been all over this. He said, look at what an amoral sociopath Adam Schiff is. He spent years promoting the Steele dossier. He read it into the congressional record. He lied about a smoking gun evidence that he saw that Mueller never found. And he's still not giving a, a, a mea culpa on the view. Also, Adam Schiff defended his promotion of the Steele dossier by citing concerns about Konstantin Kalimnik, that Manafort had passed polling data to him and that he had passed it on to Russian intelligence. None of that was referenced at all or charged in the Steele dossier. And in fact, they couldn't prove that in any of the reports, including the Mueller report. We got that. Real Clear Investigations by Aaron Mate really looked into this and they found that, well, we don't have evidence that he really did that. Mm-hmm. See, Andrew Weissman, the Mueller report, did not identify evidence of a connection between Paul Manafort sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election. But they said, but this goes to a larger view of what we think is going on. But soon after, the Mueller team quietly undercut Weissman's larger view and the conspiratorial innuendo that it had fueled. One month after igniting the frenzy about the polling data, Weissman submitted a heavily redacted court filing that walked back the claims. The following month, the special counsel's final report acknowledged that its musing and speculation about Kalimnik could not be corroborated. The Mueller team not only did not identify evidence of a connection between Manafort sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election, but also could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given it to did with it. And what Klimnik said is, I didn't, I, first of all, I'm not a Russian intelligence agent, and he gave all kinds of details to Real Clear Investigations if you want to look this, up, look this up. But he said, I have no idea who made up the lies about detailed or sensitive polling data. They were mostly quotes of the polls from the media, such as the LA Times and others. They would be Clinton 43, Trump 42, never anything more detailed. I never got even a page printed out with either polling data or any other info. The public data was shared with Ukrainian clients of Paul Manafort as part of both regular political chatter and an effort to encourage future business. Now, you can get upset about that or not, but that is not Russian collusion fixing the election. Man. All right, on to your children and schools. Faced, faced with soaring Ds and Fs, schools are ditching the old way of grading. So wait a second. So because kids aren't doing well, we're just not going to grade them anymore? Oh, no, no, no. It, it's much more than that. See, here's from the LA Times. A few years ago, high school teacher Joshua Moreno got fed up with his grading system. It had become a points game. Some students accumulated so many points early on that by the end of the term, they knew they didn't need to do more work and could still get an A. Others, often those who had to work and care for family members after school, would fail to turn in their homework and fall so far behind that they would just stop trying. Okay, well, why didn't you make your grade system so that you had to continue to do well during the entire course in order to make an A. I mean, you could change that and wait the final exam. You can do all kinds of things. No, 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 The answer, quit grading. Okay, does that help kids learn more? You just quit the grades? 
Well, no, see, we're doing a lot more than that. These days, the Alhambra high school English teacher has done away with points entirely. He no longer gives students homework and gives them multiple opportunities to improve essays and classwork. The goal is to base grades on what students are learning and remove behavior deadlines and how much work they do from the equation. Okay, but are they really learning more? Because if you're not doing any homework and there's no pressure to make sure that you get this done on time, I just know for me being a high school student, I'm slacking, man. I am slacking. Now, I love the idea of letting a student retake tests until they learn it. Let's uh, the, say they don't do well the first time. Okay, the highest you can ever get on this is a B, but you can keep taking it until you get a B. Why not an A? Well, because you have, you have to put out some effort to really learn it as quickly as possible to get the A. That's just me. But I love allowing retaking the exam. I love allowing rewriting the essays. But not during class time. Aren't you teaching? Isn't there something new to be doing? No, no, no. So they're working on this. And I just don't see how that is possibly going to work because there's only so much time in the day and you're using it all up to retake things and rewrite essays. How are they learning and moving forward? Hmm. Traditional grading is often used to justify and to provide unequal education opportunities based on a student's race or class. This is a letter sent by Yoshimoto, Tauri, and Pedro A. Garcia, Senior Executive Director of the Division of Instruction to Principals last month. Hmm. L.A. and San Diego Unified, two of the state's largest school districts, have recently directed teachers to base academic grades on whether students have learned what was expected of them during a course and not penalize them for behavior, work habits, and missed deadlines. How is that preparing them for the real world? I mean, you know, like a job, coming to work on time, getting things done that your boss asks you to in a timely manner. Uh, isn't that part of what school is about too? And by the way, are college entrance scores going to go up because somehow these kids are learning so much more now with this new system? Highly doubtful. In fact, most California universities are now not using SAT or ACT scores anymore. Now, this is the bigotry of low expectations. The College Fix goes one step further, reporting on a professor who is urging his peers to reject what he is calling white language supremacy. Yeah, traditional grading methods on writing assignments is white language supremacy, and he should use labor-based grading methods. You know, how hard the student actually worked. Quote, white language supremacy in writing classrooms is due to the uneven and diverse linguistic legacies that everyone inherits and the racialized white discourses that are used as standards, which give privilege to those students who embody those habits of white language already. So now the proper use of English language in college is white language supremacy. Doesn't matter that it's, you know, the language we speak here. So if I move to China and I go to a university in China and I don't speak Chinese well and I don't write it well and that hurts me in my schooling, that must be Chinese language supremacy? No, that's totally different. Only white language supremacy. Okay, I got you. So this professor, in a way, said white supremacy culture makes up the culture and normal practices of our classrooms and disciplines. He had an online talk titled The Possibilities of Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies. <laughs> uh, in a way, coined the term habits of white language and he calls it howl. To dismantle white supremacy in writing classrooms, and we suggested implementing labor-based grading. It redistributes power. Mm-hmm. The method involves assigning grades based on the labor students put into their assignments rather than grammar, style, or quality of their work. 
Again, how does that help you become a better writer and speaker and prepare you for the world after college? So if you claim to work hard, hey, you can get a good grade. Labor-based grading structurally changes everyone's relationship to dominant standards of English that come from elite, masculine, heteronormative, ableist, white racial groups of speakers. This guy's getting paid for this claptrap. This guy's getting specialties. I bet this guy's going to write a book and go on a world tour. This guy's going to be celebrated by the so-called elite as having some kind of brand new great ideas. And meanwhile, these kids aren't learning, these young men and women, to be prepared for the rest of their lives. Pausing in our work helps us intervene. Oh, yeah, he wants to... Wait, wait, I, I forgot this part. This is really important. Inouye provided pauses throughout his talk for participants to exercise, quote an important anti-racist practice of noticing how they take part in racism or anti-racism. Quote, pausing in our work helps us intervene and disrupt by first noticing ourselves participating in racism, engaging in white fragility, in white rage, or white language supremacy, end quote. But remember, CRT is not being taught in our schools. Well, I mean, it's the college. And he's just trying to get the other college professors to do the same thing. And I'm not talking about teaching it. I mean, come on, Greg. That's just ridiculous. Uh, inflation going nutso. Producer prices up 8.6% last month from a year earlier. Oh, man. And a 6.7% jump in wholesale gasoline prices. Used car prices going up. Jumped another 9.2% in just a month. The index is 38% higher than a year ago. 38% higher than a year ago to buy a used car. Oh, back to the gasoline. We're at a new seven-year high for that. What are we going to do about it? Oh, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, remember Jennifer Granholm was laughing. Oh, if I had a magic wand. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't know what to do. Maybe, maybe I'll tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Of course, that's not what that's for. It's for things like, you know, war. Uh, and that would have only a tiny effect anyway. I mean, I just don't know what you can do. The Deputy White House Press Secretary... Uh, Jean-Pierre was asked this by a reporter about what else the administration could do besides tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Here's the answer. You know, we have, we don't have an announcement yet on anything, anything to share at this time, you know, but we're monitoring it, right? We're monitoring the prices and we're making sure that we have tools on our tool belts that we can, we can, we can try and use. But at this time, I don't have anything new to share. And so the reporter follows up, but, but what are you reviewing? We were told that President Biden has other tools, so what are they? She she says, um, I don't, again, I don't, I don't have anything specific here. As I just mentioned, I don't have anything specific. <laughs> no, of course, I mean, there's nothing he could do. I mean, what could he do? Except, you know, not shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, not cancel oil and gas leases and try to ban them in federal lands, not talk about shutting down another pipeline in Michigan that 50% of the heating propane comes through for Michigan, uh, you know, those kind of things. Uh, maybe that would help. Maybe maybe not talk about things that will decrease investment in oil and gas in the United States of America. Remember, when Trump was in office, we were the number one producer of oil, the number one producer of natural gas, and we were exporting that stuff, and gas was like two bucks a gallon. Well, the Biden banking nominee, Saleh Amarova, she's been very controversial. Something else came out that she said earlier this year that's maybe just something you should pay attention to. She said she proposed establishing a national investment authority 
to divert investments away from the oil and gas industry into clean and green projects. She was speaking at a virtual forum in May, and she said, quote, the way we basically get rid of those carbon financers is we starve them of their sources of capital. What? Yeah. She wants to starve companies of money to invest in the oil and gas industry. I mean, it's all to fight climate change. I'm sure that'll help the price of gas. Under Omarova's proposal, the National Investment Authority would create investment funds and issue bonds in order to lure investors to fund clean energy projects, sapping oil and gas gas projects of their funding. So that's going to help, right? Um, is that the role of the federal government? To try to convince investors not to put their money into one industry, but into another. They're supposed to be picking winners and losers, manipulating our markets. That's who Biden is putting forward to be our banking person. Hank Berrien points out, the Pentagon is admitting that since Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, several dozen immediate family members of U.S. service members are still trapped there. NBC News citing two officials. There are well over 100 extended family members still in Afghanistan, but it's not clear how many of them want to leave the country. How many of you think want to stay? And why isn't this front page news? My name is Greg Knapp. This is the Greg Knapp Experience. (laughs) 